Well, welcome, everybody. My name is Johnny. I'm one of the pastors here. I love that when baby dedication is happening, you have like every baby is crying, which feels like the most perfect metaphor for what parenting is. Like this is going to be beautiful if you like tears. Uh, welcome, everybody. It's so good to celebrate Mother's Day with you. Um, so if you're a mom, thank you. We love moms here, big fans. Uh, so whether you've been a mom for a long time or you're a brand new mom, like we just saw on stage, celebrate you, honor you, want to pray for you, want you to know that as a community we're like in this with you, that baby dedication is not simply a moment to say like, hey, congratulations. As Kristen said, it is a moment for us to enter into relationship with you and to say that, hey, this is like a community thing and that we are your church and we're your people and we want to be in this with you. But just as we celebrate, it is also important to remember that is beautiful and as wonderful and as amazing and as fun as this day can be for some of us, it can also be hard and frustrating and sad for others. And I don't say that because I want to ruin a fun moment, but instead because I want to invite us as the people of Jesus into attention. As followers of Jesus, we should be able to both celebrate and also hold frustration at the same moment kind of like our entire story, is that we're hoping for something and longing for something that's coming, and that's beautiful, and that's good, and that's right, and yet we do it in the midst of something that is often complicated and hard and tenacious. And so our lives are about holding that tension together. And so we do that in our story, we do that in the hope of the world, and we also do it in this moment on Mother's Day. So the people of Jesus, we need to both be able to celebrate and lament at the exact same moment. So we stand with moms who have dedicated their children here. We stand with grandmas and biological moms of all sorts and adopted moms and stepmoms and friends of moms. We stand with everybody who's been a mom in some way, and at the exact same moment, we also hold the tension of frustration and sadness. So, Missy, before we do anything else, let's take a moment to pray and try to do both of those things. God, we are most accustomed to engaging you as a father. And that is right and that is good because you describe yourself as a good and perfect father. But all throughout your story, you also use motherly imagery to make sense of who you are. You describe yourself like a mother who is giving birth. You describe yourself like a mother who ferociously protects her children. You describe yourself like a mother who shows compassion. Thank you that those words are not distant abstractions, but that we get to understand what they look like because we are surrounded by women who point us towards you. Who in their lives, in their repentance, in their hope, and in the way that they love, make known your love, your strength, and your steadfastness. God, help us today be a people of celebration and honor and thanksgiving as we celebrate the moms in our midst. But at the same time, God, do not let us forget that today can also be hard and complicated and frustrating. Help us to name a difficult reality and hold the tension of the good and the hard together. God, help us celebrate today and also join with frustrating prayer. God, help us be thankful today at a deep and true level, but also saddened by absence or heartbreak and God, help us today be grateful for closeness and intimacy and also mourn absence and distance. Help us hold the good and the hard and the middle all together. 
God, help us to hold it together and then meet us in the tension. Speak a word of peace to our hearts today and let us know in vivid reality the depth and magnitude and splendor of your love for us. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, Missio, if you would, go ahead and grab a Bible and open up to Philippians. Philippians. We're going to be kind of jumping around at different moments in the book of Philippians, so you could just open up generally, and I'll then, you know, instruct you further from there. So choose your own Philippian adventures ride. Does anybody here uh, listen to the New York Times podcast, The Daily? Hey, one person. Hey, two people. I knew you would. Um, this is a heisey, of course. There is a, there's a, the episodes are hit and miss, right? Like, throughout the week, you'll find some that are really good, and you'll find some that are kind of like, meh. But there was an episode this week that was interviewing Chris Hughes, who was the co-founder of Facebook. And they were interviewing him because he had just written an op-ed for the New York Times, kind of describing the company that he helped build and describing his friend Mark Zuckerberg. And the big kind of like theme that's running throughout his interview and also through his article is his fear that Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg have grown too powerful. So he begins to talk about it. He's like, I think they have grown too powerful. One, because Facebook is a monopoly. And he's like, no one can compete in the social media landscape because of who Facebook is. If Facebook wants to do something, they either copy other social media so they can't survive, they block that social media company from using their services, which is like what happened to Vine, and now Vine's no longer with us, rest in power. <laughs> right? Or they just they copy the technology straight out, or they buy it like they did with Instagram and WhatsApp. So it's like anything that is kind of like a, an obstacle to their advancement, they buy, they copy, or they block. And he's like, there's, there's consequences to how fast they've grown, how large they have grown. Like you have in 2016, you had the Cambridge Analytical scandal where a lot of our information got released. You have the disinformation that led to the genocide in Myanmar. And not to mention just the involvement in the American elections. And so Chris is like lamenting this. He says something has gone wrong, something is broken, and it needs to be fixed. Now, if you were paying attention to Facebook in 2016 when all of this stuff happened, you'll remember that Zuckerberg got dragged before Congress, and he was forced to answer a bunch of just like totally inane questions by old people who don't understand technology. And the story that got told from there was both Congress is inept and Zuckerberg is cold. I don't know if you remember that, but it was like he's so robotic, he's such an engineer, he's so cold. He's like merciless, and he's like heartless, and he thinks different than other people, and he's totally unusual, and he's weird and strange, and there's something different about the way that he works. And that's what I really liked about this interview with Chris Hughes, because he's like, none of that is true. He's like, Mark is the same nerdy kid that I met in college. He's not remarkable compared to other people. He's not so much more talented than other people. He's not so much more brilliant than other people. He's not cold. He's not calculating. He's a big nerd. And he, he makes this statement in his interview or his article, which I thought was so fascinating. He says, Mark demonstrated nothing nefarious. He's like, there's nothing about him that, that was wrong or cold or calculating. He wasn't trying to like take over the world in a, in a weird way. 
I mean, not in a way that's different than normal tech companies are. He wasn't doing something nefarious. He just demonstrated the virtuous hustle of a talented entrepreneur. He's like, Mark did nothing unusual at all. He did exactly what was expected of him. He did exactly what the culture around him celebrated. He did exactly what the board of directors wanted, what business school wanted, what everyone around him celebrated, what tech magazines and Wired, what they celebrated, what they declared as good and right, that is what Mark did. And the only thing that makes him unusual is that it worked. If we're honest about the Facebook Zuckerberg story, I think we can understand that what he's saying feels true. Our culture celebrates a certain kind of success. And we celebrate a certain way of getting that success. In America, we believe that hustle is holy. And that the right direction is always up. And so if you work hard and you do the right things, you can climb the ladder, and that is the right direction to move always. We value moving forward. We value moving upwards. We value getting better. We celebrate beating the competition. That is the story that underwrites everything in our world. It's the American story. It's the Facebook and Zuckerberg story. That's the Apple story. It's also stories that undergird Enron. And sometimes we love the consequences of that story. Like, we love Apple, some of you. We use Facebook. Sometimes we lament the consequences, like in a case like Enron. But the thing that we rarely ever question is whether or not the direction itself is right or good. It's like the direction and the movement and the upward momentum and the upward mobility or the forward momentum, that's good, that's right, and something broke at the end of that equation. We never question whether the movement itself is good or right. We never question whether the hustle is actually virtuous. We never ask ourselves whether or not 10 is always greater than 1. These are the questions that Paul is asking in the book of Philippians. Paul has devoted the best years of his life to following Jesus. And in so doing, he has lost significantly. Paul begins his career as a Pharisee, a religious leader, an elite in Jewish society. He has a quality reputation. He's advancing up the corporate ladder. He's securing himself a place of comfort and safety and security. But now, he's lost all of those things. He's lost his prestigious reputation. He's lost his job. He's probably lost most of the friends that came with that kind of culture and community And currently, as he writes the book of Philippians, he finds himself under house arrest in Rome a few years from his execution. So as he's looking at his life and he's telling his story, and he's writing this letter, he begins to ask the question, how do I count it? How do I count it all? How do I measure the worth and the value and the significance of my existence? Did I move in the right direction? How do I count it? Now, Paul, at the time, he lives in the Roman Empire. And Rome 
like America, has a definitive way of counting. Rome had become the most powerful nation on earth, arguably the most powerful nation the earth had ever seen at the time. They waged war and conquered the known world, the entire known map of their lives. They had conquered and drawn it in order to secure peace. They had kidnapped and imported into Rome millions of slaves to uphold the social hierarchy and economic system of the Roman Empire. Their Caesar, who was Nero at the time of this writing, most likely, had to politically maneuver, amass power in order to become the chief lead. And when they did, they became like God, slightly divine. So how does Rome count? Upwards. Rome measures and values up. The empire can be bigger and it should be bigger. That is always the right answer to the question. And so we will do what it takes to get that way. We will fight and force and use power in order to secure our borders because we can justify any ends because right is up. Because with enough power and with enough strength and with enough size, you can become like a god. So that story, that Roman story of how you count, well, that's spinning on one side of Paul's imagination But there is another story that exists in Paul's life, too. He grew up in a religious community. That religious community gets conquered by the Roman story and has to figure out how to deal with life in that world. And so they, too, have a story of how to survive and of how to move forward. Paul, in Philippians 3, kind of gives word to some of the intricacies of this story because it's the one that he's lived previously. He says, if anyone thinks... He has reason for confidence in the flesh. I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, the persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Where Rome counts worth through political power, wealth, hierarchy, authority, This religious story counts worth through purity, moralism, social connection, reputation. Paul has both of these stories kind of spinning around his head. But the tricky part is is if Paul decides to count his worth, count his life, measure his significance by those stories, he has objectively failed. He has objectively failed failed. Paul has not amassed power. In fact, he is literally given away at every moment that he's had opportunity to. He's started churches, handed it off to other leaders, left penniless. Paul was an itinerant tent maker at best. Every moment that he could have amassed power, he gave it away. Every moment he could have built an institution that propped himself up, he handed it off and gave it away and moved somewhere else. So he's not amassed power, He's not amassed much prestige because he has to convince most of these churches that he's left that he's actually an apostle when he writes a letter to him. So he doesn't have a lot of reputation or authority in those contexts. He tried the more religious story, but now he is at best a pariah to the Jewish community that he came from. He rejected that narrative. He rejected that work, and so they rejected him 
And now he's under house arrest and will be dead soon. And so no matter how you count, that equals failure. So no matter how Paul measures his life based upon these two stories, he looks like a failure. He looks like he hasn't measured up. The chips have fallen, and he's in the negative. But here's the amazing thing. Paul says in Philippians 3, verse 7, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Paul looks at Roman power and religious moralism and says, your math is wrong. Three times in this moment, Paul looks at what is counted valuable and worth much and says it is loss or rubbish. I love that the word is rubbish. Like you do all this colloquial translation and they're like, yeah, but the word rubbish. Three times he looks at those things and says, no, it's not worth what you consider it. And Paul isn't just saying that we value different things. That's not the only thing he's talking about. They do value different things, but it's not simply you value the wrong thing and I value a different thing. No, he's saying the way you count is wrong. The way you count, the way you measure, the way you value, the economic system that funds your imagination, oh, that is actually broken. The way you count is wrong. It's as though Paul looked at Facebook and said that your desire to be better than competitors, to dominate the global tech market, to be the top social media company in the world is the wrong way to count. It does not make you successful. Or it's like he looked at our bank accounts and our beautiful homes, our prestigious jobs, our academic records, how close to the center of power we are, how safe we feel, how comfortable we are, and said, that is the wrong way to count. That is the wrong way to measure. Your math is wrong. If we're honest, I think that most of us, kind of think through this, can admit that we count success in one of these ways. Like Rome or Facebook, I think a lot of us count upwards. Did you put up the graph? A lot of us count upwards, meaning that we measure success based upon the accumulation of something. It can be wealth, it can be prestige, it can be influence, it can be millions of followers or millions of dollars. You insert into the blank your thing. So we measure success by a more of something, and to, to get that thing, we are willing to take intense risks. Right? We love to celebrate that in the United States. We love to celebrate the person who lives on the line, who risked it all. So we're willing to take immense risks in order to get immense power. That's the story of America. But you'll notice that there is something tricky about this moment. The more that risk increased, the more that power must also increase in order to mitigate risk. Like Facebook or like Rome, there is a self-perpetuating cycle. 
Now, not everyone counts like this. Not everyone counts upwards. If you're into the Enneagram, you might have a nine friend in your life. And what I've learned is that none of my nine friends count upwards. They don't even know what I'm talking about when I talk about counting upwards. They hear the word hustle and they're like, gross, I want a nap. More is not the way that they would measure success. More is not the way that they would measure significance. More is not the way that they would count their life. A better description might be through security or through comfort or through safety. They don't necessarily need more power, but they most certainly want to mitigate risk. And so as opposed to counting upward, they count forward. We can live with less power as long as it equals less risk. I want to mediate the amount of risk in my life because I want to mitigate the amount of change in my life. This is where most of the religious population of Paul's world live. You had zealots, people who wanted to overthrow the Roman Empire, but for the most part, the Jewish community wanted a secure safe and comfortable existence in Rome. They wanted the freedom to worship like they wanted to, the freedom to do what they wanted without much challenge or difficulty. So they were willing to not take intense risks in order to not endure the consequences of intense risks. So they could move forward. I think most of us live somewhere in between these spaces. It's not a binary, it's a spectrum. But if we look at our own lives and we look at the decisions that we've made and we look at the jobs that we've taken, we look at the values that we have, we look at the way we've raised our family or the ways we've moved, I think we can figure out pretty quickly where in the graph we would rest. So maybe as you look at it, just think through that. Where do you count? How do you count? Do you count like Rome, upwards, or forward, like religion? And maybe another question to ask that would help be, help illuminate that is how do the people around you count? How do the institutions you're in count? Maybe even how does Missio count? Do we count forward or upwards? So Paul looks at both of these stories in the book of Philippians, both of these ways of counting. He addresses both of these because they are prevalent in the lives of the people around him. It's the Roman story around him. It's most certainly the question that the Philippians would have been asking. And so he looks at both of these mechanisms and ways of counting and says, there is a different way to count in Jesus. In fact, Jesus flips the entire script and math up on top of its head. And so if you look at Philippians 2 verse 7, understand that Paul is writing with this, with the Roman story full in his head. And he says this, he says, Jesus who is God, emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So he's that Roman story full in his mind, that religious story full in his mind, and he says, you believe that gaining power and wealth and politically maneuvering can make you a God? But here is the truth. God emptied himself, took on flesh, and became a man. 
Caesar literally wanted to become God-like, to transcend his humanity, to take off his flesh and to become something more. And Paul's like, hold on, the real story of how power actually works is that God put on flesh. He didn't try to take it off and transcend above. He stepped into it. And not only did he become a human, which is what you're trying to avoid, he became a servant, a slave. And slaves occupied the lowest rung of Roman social order. They were kidnapped, forced into servitude. They upheld the system and the hierarchy. And Jesus says, I actually move intentionally to this place that you have put your lowest population. And not only have I moved to the lowest part of your social ladder, not only have I moved intentionally to the least prestigious, least significant, least powerful place in all of Roman society, I have actually gone even further to the point of death. Most of us would consider death a failure, But Paul says, you died even on a cross. And the reason he uses that language is because Rome understood the cross to be the most humiliating form of death. The cross was preserved to make a statement about somebody. If you wanted to shame somebody, you put them on a cross. If you wanted to tell the world that what they believed or what they said or what they did was so antithetical to your power story, you put them on a cross to shame them, to humiliate them, ground them into the dust. And Jesus says, no, I actually move there deliberately. That my nature is downward, and I intentionally demote myself and descend even to the point of utter humiliation. You think the story works this way? I count this way. I count differently. The story that Paul is writing in Philippians 2, it is intended to speak to the Roman and religious stories. That's his context. That's the world that he exists in. And so each moment is intentionally communicated as a demotion or an act of dissent. Right? He shows that Jesus does not accumulate or hoard power in order to mitigate risks, in order to protect himself, in order to secure himself or keep himself comfortable. Instead, he moves away from power towards risk. He moves towards vulnerability. He doesn't hold prestige or privilege, but instead he actually gives it up to move closer to the form of a servant. He doesn't even hold his own life, but he sacrifices it and gives it up. Jesus always moves in the opposite direction of Rome or religion. If Rome counts upwards and religion counts forward, Jesus counts backwards. You're like, that's not how math works. Shut up. This is true all throughout Jesus' story and ministry. Every moment that you look at his existence, he's always finding a way to count backwards. But there's one moment that I think illustrates this best, and it comes right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And it's right after he's baptized. Right after he's been declared the Son of God, he enters into the wilderness for a period of 40 days to be tempted. You know that moment he endures three temptations. Each one of them are significant in their own way. But the third temptation is the one that has the most visceral response from Jesus. The tempter comes to Jesus and he says, if you would bow down and worship me, I would give you the kingdoms of the earth. And we've been talking about through the series that Jesus is on a mission to establish his kingdom. 
to right the wrongs of the world, to reconcile heaven and earth, to declare his authority and kingship over all things. So the temptation speaks right to the thing that Jesus is trying to do, establish a kingdom. But the thing that's different about the temptation is the way the kingdom gets established. The temptation is to do it the way kingdoms have always been established, to count upwards or forward, to do what Rome had done, to do what religion had done, to do what the empires of the past and future have always done. I think that's why Jesus responds so viscerally to this temptation. Because it is an issue of compromising the how of the kingdom. So Jesus instead, he looks at the values and the measures and the calculations of Rome and religion, the havoc, the damage, the pain that those calculations have caused and says, your math is wrong. We count different in this kingdom. And what is the result? Well, Paul says in Philippians 2, he says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus refuses to compromise the way his kingdom is built. And therefore, it becomes exactly the kind of kingdom the world so desperately needs. The way you build determines what you build. The way you count determines how you value. And in Jesus, we see someone who refuses to count upwards or forward, but for the sake of his work and for the sake of his people, counts backwards. Now, you might be like, okay, that's great, but what does that mean for us? Like, we're in a series talking about being the people of Jesus, and so how does that inform how we're the people of Jesus? Well, Paul actually answers that question, because the reason he's told us all of this stuff about Jesus is this in verse 5. He says, have this mind, the mind I've just described to you, have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So I've just told you how Jesus counts backwards, how he values differently, how he overthrows the systems and economics of our world and our imagination. Have that mind amongst yourself. As followers of Jesus, we are called and invited to count like Jesus. Jesus says this to his followers all the time. He says, if you want to gain your life, you must lose it. If you want to be first, you need to be last. If you want to be the greatest, you shall be the servant of all. Unless you become like a child, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, we have been called and invited into the work that Jesus is doing. Called to join in the establishment of his kingdom by counting backwards. By flipping the things that we value and measure upside down, by moving away from prestige and power towards sacrifice and towards service. And maybe that still feels confusing. Makes sense. So Paul gives us another framework in case we don't understand what he's saying. He says, here it is. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, what? Count others more significant than yourselves. 
What does it look like to count backwards? It looks like to count others more significantly. What does it mean to reverse the values and systems of our world upside down? It looks like to count others more significantly. It looks to put like your ambitions at the very bottom of the pile and say, I will count others as more significant than myself. This is Mother's Day, so a good example of this is moms. Whether they work or they stay at home, at the best of times, those decisions are reframed in light of this child that they're raising. So their monies and their jobs and their homes and the school systems they choose, it all gets reframed in light of raising a child. So what if we started thinking of everyone around us like that? Not just our families and our friends, but our coworkers and our neighbors, refugees and immigrants, widows and orphans. What if our money and our homes and our jobs and our schools were reframed in light of saying, those people are more significant. I will count differently. That's what it means to count backwards. It means to say that something else matters more, more than security or comfort, more than the accumulation of more. It's to say that others matter more, that we will consider them more significant than ourselves. And maybe you're thinking, you're like, well, that doesn't sound very dramatic. Like you, you just said that Jesus is flipping the whole system up on its head and changing the way the economic system works, and that we're participated, and then the thing you told us to do is to count differently, to count others more significant. That's what I love about the practices that Jesus gives his people. They often appear small and simple, but they are never insignificant. Jesus described his kingdom like a mustard seed or like yeast that sneaks its way into something and then fundamentally changes its very structure in DNA. It's unassuming, it's unpretentious, and yet it's transformative. The issue is that so often our imaginations are formed by counting forward or counting upwards. Not only do we value up and forward, we also think that the world works up and forward. Like that the only way to change the world is to to do the same thing, to take the same route that Mark Zuckerberg did, or to move like Facebook, or to move like Rome, or to secure yourself like religion. We think like that's how you change the world and that's how you impact it is by accumulating power or holding on to it in order to mitigate risk. But counting backwards is not simply about valuing differently. It's about how Jesus' kingdom actually emerges in the world. It is not like Rome. It is not like religion. We have tried that and seen where it gets us. Instead, it looks like Jesus, who took the form of a servant and gave himself for others. It looks like Paul, who counted it as gain to lose everything for the sake of Christ. It is small, but it is transformative. If we started living that way, if we started counting backwards, it would cause real trouble. Last week, Heather told the story of the church who stops buying something in the city of Ephesus. 
And by that simple gesture of saying no to something, it causes a full-fledged economic turmoil. Simple, but it's not insignificant. But that flows out of a different way of seeing the world, of saying that I'm going to count differently. I'm going to value differently. And when a people group decide to value differently together, it upsets entire economies. We see Rome itself disrupted by this changing of values in the people of Jesus. Paul is beheaded for a reason. Jesus is crucified for a reason. Peter is crucified for a reason. It's not simply because they said things that people didn't like. It's because they led communities that were disruptive, that valued differently, and in valuing differently and counting backwards, it changed the game. That causes trouble. But most importantly, when we decide that we're going to count backwards, it witnesses to Jesus, to who he is, to the way he works, and it makes his kingdom real right now, right here. So, Missio, where do you need to count backwards? Maybe the question is, where do you need to risk backwards? Where do you need to move away from empty visions and values, upend your own metrics and count differently? It can be hard to answer that question. And so where do you need to invite the community into your life in order to discern where to count backwards? Heather suggested this last week, but we go to house church. Maybe it's time for you to open up your finances with your house church and say, where do I need to count backwards? Man, that's risky. That's moving away from the things that protect you on that scale, giving up power, but moving into risk and vulnerability to say, hey, I'm going to invite you into my life to decide what I should do with my finances. That's scary just thinking about it. Where do you need to open up your community and say, hey, help me discern how to move away from protection and power towards risk and vulnerability to move towards likeness with Jesus? Maybe that still needs some clarity. And so, Missio, maybe we should just take a moment as the service ends to pray and to ask the Spirit of God to discern in our lives where we count upwards, where we count forwards, and how we need help counting backwards. So as we close out, as we come to the table, and as we sing that song, would you make that prayer, like the, the prayer that finishes the service, maybe even come over here and pray with somebody at the table to say, how do I count forwards? How do I in my own life do that? How do I count upwards? Help me count backwards. People would love to pray with you. Our elders would love to talk with you. I think Mark just started a whole business having conversations about how you can take your finances and submit them to Jesus. You should talk to him. And above all, Missy, would you come to the table? Because at this moment, we see what happens when Jesus counts backwards. When Jesus moves away from like prestige and power into risk, he makes space for all of us to belong in his kingdom. He pays the way. He provides the space. And so as we gather around the table, we actually get to taste and see what that work looks like. We get to be a part of it, a participant in it, so that it shapes our hearts and our minds to say, oh, this is what's possible when we count backwards. Let's pray.
Jesus, in every way, from Genesis to Revelations, you have moved towards us. You have not hoarded, you have not protected, you have not fought or coerced in order to gain more power because you don't need to. And so every moment you have moved towards us, you have given up, you have stepped into our lives and made space for us. So God, as we hear that story, as we, as we taste and see that it is true at the table, would you form us into a backwards-counting people who, in light of who you are and in light of the love of you, reevaluate our entire existence who imagine differently, and in doing so, make real your kingdom here and now. Amen.